All right. So it is March 9th, 2014. Our message today is really about success. I called it the seductive, successful self. And uh, there's a reason for that. As we go through these scriptures today, I think you're going to see some of the things that war within our members. Start with me in 1 Samuel. We'll be in the 15th chapter. It's good to be preaching among the house of God this morning. To preach in hostile environments has its pluses. The Lord shows up in power to preach to the family of God, though, is an amazing opportunity because when we do this, we find out God's heart for his family. He loves us. Church, with God, all things are possible. If you're facing an impossible situation today, you need to know it, it can change. The power of the gospel can change anything. How many of you were once headed the wrong direction? Raise your hand. And look, God has turned you around. That ought to give you hope for the areas we're still waiting on. Are you in Samuel 15? Listen to how crystal clear this imperative is, starting in chapter, verse 3. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. I don't know how you'd define totally, but I would say it means destroy them all. Do you think there's any wiggle room in the word totally? Probably not. How many of the commands of God are there that there is no wiggle room in, and yet we try to make it? How about this one? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. How about this one? Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. How about this one? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. How about this one? It's not the man who hears the word that is declared righteous, but the one who does what it says. How many commands of God are there that are as clear as go totally destroy all of them, but we make wiggle room in them? We look the other way and act as if they're not commands. We're not going to examine Saul's behavior as much as we're going to look at ours today. Go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. If we have to name the various kinds of livestock, God was pretty specific, wasn't he? Now, is there anybody in here? No, let me just say this. I have read this scripture before and gone, wow, that seems harsh. Yeah. I mean, goodness, babies. Of course, God knows things that we don't know. The Amalekites did unspeakable things and were continuing to do unspeakable things, and their very presence in this land, was corrupting peoples. God makes decisions that we don't like sometimes. And if you have the right to overrule God, then how can you say that you are his servant? Either we follow him or we ask him to follow us. Either we deny ourselves and follow him or we deny him and follow ourselves. This is not an easy choice. It sounds easy. Our Christian ethos says, well, of course we follow the Lord. 
But what if you're in Abraham's position? What if the Lord has spoken to you and told you, take your son up on Mount Moriah? How easy was that choice? We do ourselves a disservice to make the Christian life sound easy. It's simple, but it is very far from easy. Could you have many objections to this command? We have a loving God that you can voice objections to. You can talk to him, and he's not required to, but he will talk back. You know what is difficult, though? If you say, yes, sir, I will go do it, he expects you to do it. How many things have you told him, yes, sir, I will do? And now you're having conversations about the efficacy of the choice afterwards. Have you promised him your life? How many of you in here have promised Jesus Christ your life? If you've promised him your life, he expects you to do it, regardless of the expediency of the moment. So Saul summoned the men, mustered them at Telam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so I do not destroy you along with them. Is this aimless slaughter? No, it's, it's very selected. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And he and all his people, he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of sheep and cattle and the fat calves and the lambs and everything that was good. How do you feel about that? It's awful quiet. There is 200,000 men plus another 10,000 from Judah. And they heard the command of God and they're watching their leader. And he sets out to do the work of God until he sees something that he thinks is good. And then he decides not to obey because his estimation is this is good stuff. Why would we do that? You know... Reminds me of somebody in a garden that had all the good things that they could possibly want. But they saw the one thing that God said you may not eat and decided it was good for food. We make these choices all of the time. Listen to how this continues. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me. Do you think Saul thought he turned away from him? No, how did he turn away from him? He, I did what you told me to do, Lord, except this one little part we're not going to talk about. And has not carried out my instructions. Notice that the Lord equates carrying out his instructions with following him. Jesus said that like this. If you love me, you will obey what I command. How many believers would say that Saul is a picture of the Antichrist, but we don't carry out what the Lord tells us to do? 
We would say the Lord is right. His ways are right. His word is inspired. But we're not going to talk about these areas because they're difficult. See, I think Saul sacrificed on the altar of success something so much more important than success. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. Do you remember how Judas betrayed Jesus? With a kiss. You can turn away from the Lord while kissing him. You can turn away from the Lord while saying, the Lord bless you. You can turn away from the Lord while saying, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons? Did I not perform miracles? You can turn away from the Lord while saying all of the right things and performing some affectionate actions. That's a scary truth, isn't it? But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Doesn't that sound exactly like the man blaming the woman and the woman blaming the snake? Who was in charge of the soldiers? Saul. The buck stops with Saul, but he passes it right along to the soldiers. Sin always progresses. It always involves others. It always grows from something you think is your choice to something that defiles Many. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You see, I was doing all of this disobedience in obedience to the Lord. That sounds silly, doesn't it? And yet, the vast majority of people you meet that call themselves Christians, live in a way that is disobedient to the Lord while they are calling themselves obedient to the Lord. Let's just get down to brass tacks. If we say that we love the Lord, is it possible to be financially in sin and continue to follow the Lord? At some point, Jesus said, you're going to have to pick one master and serve him. Is it possible to continue to be sexually immoral and love the Lord? If we just took sex and money, how much of the church is completely dominated by sex and money but claims to love the Lord? They say, bless the Lord. They say they're walking in obedience. I did nine out of the ten things you told me to do, Lord. I killed all but what I thought was the best that I kept in reserve for me. And was it a good choice on a natural level? Why throw away all those good sheep? We're going to need them in sacrifices. Why throw away all those good cows? We're going to need them. How many people to draw the biggest crowd they could draw sacrificed the full gospel that God called us to preach? But how do you justify it? You say, I have all of these people here and Certainly, the majority of good that is being done outweighs those little sacrifices. So even though Corinthians 14, 26 says these things must be done, 
Speaking of psalms, hymns, prophecies, speaking of spiritual gifts in the church, even though it says these things must be done in order that we don't offend the masses, we sacrifice it on the altar of expediency. And then what justifies it? Our success. Look how many people are here. Look at the resources we have. Look at what we can now do because we made the gospel more attractive by adding our success to it. See, I bet Saul would have made a fine pastor. I bet he would have made a fine pastor because as long as we don't sacrifice anything the people want, then the people will follow. And after all, isn't the point of the people or the point of this thing to get people to follow? But who are they following? Trying to do God's work in our own way. Adjusting priorities as we see fit. Evaluating successes within the context of a return on our investment rather than obedience and completion is perhaps the most prevalent form of idolatry in America. What this says is if it works, we will do it. If the people find it acceptable, we will do it. Does it bother you that I speak in other tongues every day? Would it surprise you to know that there are pastors who speak in other tongues that cannot tell their congregations because they'll lose their congregations? Does that surprise anybody? How is that any different? If the Bible says, do not forbid speaking in other tongues... If the Bible says this, then how is it acceptable to say to gain the larger crowd, we will forbid speaking in other tongues? How is that any different? Where's the ambiguity in do not forbid speaking in other tongues? What we've gained and the supposed greater good have defined as success, have been defined as success rather than obeying the voice of the Lord. What do you call a Christian success? Is it a success for an evangelist to have a thousand people come to an altar? Well, on one level, you say yes and say it immediately. I mean, we want to see people saved. What if none of them are actually saved? Is it a success? Well, it looks like one. Doesn't it? It looks like one. So what happens when we begin to lift up that success above obeying the Lord? Would you admire a man more that gets a thousand people at an altar or one that says, I don't want a single one of you to come to this altar until you can demonstrate repentance in your life? Which would you admire? Because we can demonstrate it in the word. But you show me which one of our heroes is lifted up for that reason. Who do you admire because their church experienced a shaking and those who were not serious about God left? I mean, can you name that person? Certainly it's a small list, huh? But we admire whoever has the largest church, don't we? Why? Why? I was told this weekend that in this one grouping with multiple campuses, there's, there's 50,000 people that meet. Well, good. That's not my concern. 
My concern is how many are changed by the power of the gospel. Is it wrong to meet with 50,000 people? No, no. You give me 50,000 men who are serious about changing the world, we'll finish this thing. Start with 12. We'll finish this thing. Did Jesus speak to an ever-growing crowd? Or did his crowd ebb and flow like the ocean? When he fed them and he said things that they liked, the crowds grew. When he said things that they didn't like, the crowd shrank. Who do we know that we can praise their work for resembling Jesus in that fashion? Our churches have never been bigger, never been wealthier, and yet they're full of the love of money and the love of the successful self and are strangely devoid of God's power. Am I the only one that first read the New Testament and went, where are these things in our church? Am I the only one that did that? I took my first Bible and question marks are all over it. If this is true, how come I've never seen it? And you know what the answer was from the men that I fellowshiped with? We don't do that where we're at because if we did, the people would all leave. You want to stay where the resources are. Which resources? The heavenly kind or the earthly kind? See, we have a choice before us. We can look like a success wherever we go, even in the world's eyes, by building the biggest, the newest, the best, and the most trendy. We can do it. Or we can stand up for a message that has changed countless thousands, but only does it a remnant at a time. Amen. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. We're going to be in the third chapter. Say there when you're there. Third chapter, here comes verse 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Anybody believe that's true? I just want to make sure we're tracking with each other. In the last days, will there be terrible times? Are we seeing some terrible times? People will be lovers of themselves. Well, good thing we're not seeing any of that. That would mean that we'd be in the last days. Are we seeing... Even churches characterized by people that love themselves. How about people who love money? None of that in the church, is there? What does he define as terrible times? The first two things that he says is when people love themselves and love money. I challenge you to leave this place, go walk through a Christian bookstore, and tell me, based on every title you see, how many of them could easily fit into those two categories, loving money or loving yourself, health and wealth. You may even find sectional headings called health and wealth. And what does the scripture say marks terrible times? People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Look at the last part of verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That doesn't speak to the church, does it? 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If our biggest concern when we start this service is that we start on time and end on time, that's the holy grail of today, is that we start on time and end on time. Are we saying that we're here because we love God? God, you get the next 59 minutes and 59 seconds, but after that, I'm out of here. Because that's what you did to your lover on the honeymoon, right? You said, hey, look, uh, I got a schedule to meet, and uh, you can have a one hour of my affection. What do you do when you get married? Did anybody block off some time? Anybody go on vacation? When you got married, where'd you go, Brandon? On a cruise. Was it a one-hour cruise? Five days. The brother dedicated five days to spend with his wife. But we want the Lord to be blessed by our 59 minutes and 59 seconds. And the committee will meet with you after this service if you go over but we don't love pleasure rather than God. And what are we watching our clock for? Somebody tell the pastor it is football season. Does he not know that there is a Super Bowl today? No, I know. I don't care. Don't even remotely, it doesn't cross my mind because I'm here talking about God. You're talking about a child's game that we play grown men, pay grown men to play. I think it's obscene. And my entire family played at the collegiate and pro level. And I think it's obscene and I tell them too. Pay somebody millions of dollars to do something that was designed to entertain children. But a pastor, he ought to live in poverty. Lovers of pleasure. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Are there at least a handful of the churches that have nice steeples, have nice stained glass, nice pews, and plenty of people, but nobody's been healed there in a hundred years? They don't even believe that you can heal. I was reading something that R.C. Sproul wrote, and I wouldn't call him out except he signed it. He said, I do not believe in miracles. Do not. To be clear, I do not, he says, believe in miracles because if you, a Christian, can be an agent of the miraculous, then there's no difference between you and the man who wrote the word and who's to say that when you write a letter, it's not the word, therefore you cannot do miracles. I thought, I've never heard more twisted, disgusting logic in my life, and this is one of the most brilliant men that's ever walked the planet. But you know what? R.C. Sproul will never see a miracle. Because Mark 16 says these are for those who believe. John MacArthur can hold a conference on the East Coast of the United States, and I wouldn't call him out by name, except this is how he advertises himself. That says men who say these things, that miracles are for today. They're charlatans. It's false fire, he says. We were told there would be terrible times in which a church would be characterized by loving yourself, Loving money and loving pleasure rather than God. I, don't, I actually think those men love the Lord. I think they're just confused. 
I'm not saying they're bad men. I'm here to talk about us. I'm saying what's going to characterize our life and what are we willing to sacrifice on the altar of success? Nobody in their right mind would trade the power of God for temporal things. But understand the lie of the devil has been that our successes are the power of God. We meet here with 5,000 people because God's power is with us. How does it show up then? You can't prophesy. You can't speak in other tongues. You won't roll somebody to the front in a wheelchair. How does it show up? What we come down to is it shows up in the eloquence of our speaker, the beauty of our building, and the number of our people. And that makes us the best. Does it make you the best in God's eyes or men's eyes? Then why do we acknowledge it and lift it up? Hmm? Why do you think the mayor of our city asked one of our city's pastors to pray for her at the inauguration to her office? Because he pastored the biggest, most successful church in the nation. I say, by whose standards? By whose standards? We need to be careful that this American fascination with success does not taint what we think about God's work. Was Jesus successful by those standards? Were any of the apostles successful by those standards? Can you picture a single apostle saying, I don't know how to fly it, but I know how to buy it? That's a famous quote from an evangelist in New Orleans who is supposed to be Pentecostal, but he's more proud of his success than he is anything else. And you know what? People love him. They watch him on TV all of the time. God gathered this enormous crowd. God made us so wealthy. God blessed us with all this. But it's not the power of God because the lives of the people remain unchanged and what they're really attracted to is the selfish, successful self. Let me ask you, are you more likely to read a book that has got a pretty person on the cover or an ugly person? It's true. It's true. So what we do is we Photoshop our pastor and his wife to make them look taller. Well, you don't have to do it with Jen. She's already beautiful. We Photoshop it because nobody's going to go to the church if the pastor is fat and bucktooth and balding. Why? I read a book about leadership here recently that I loved. It's a great book. But I bet he said 15 times in it that a successful leader is physically fit, eats a balanced diet, is healthy. (laughs) Where do you find that in the Word? You know, the man who wrote it, oddly enough, was sickly, tiny, frail. Do you think that success has creeped into the church in a form of idolatry. In Samuel 15, what did Samuel tell Saul? I didn't read it to you. Keith Green used to sing about it. Does the Lord delight, this is verse 22, in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Where is the Lord's delight? Is it in the beautiful people? 
Is it in the large buildings? Is it in the accumulation of wealth? He delights in people obeying his voice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You want to show me a man worthy of our honor and respect? Show me one that obeyed when it hurt, who kept his word when it hurt, when it cost him everything, but he did what God told him to do. I say you could measure the successful man by what his obedience cost him. Amen. Is that even in our vocabulary? See, if we silently ascend to the right ideas, but we accept what's going on around us, you will struggle with inadequacy your entire life because as you follow the Lord truthfully, you will be persecuted. As you follow the Lord truthfully, your sacrifices will have to be great. And when you look around at the other great Christians, what are you going to see? Oh, you're going to see health, wealth, success, prosperity. And you're going to go, what's wrong with me that I'm like that? First time I ever came into grips with this, the pastor told me I was under a, the curse of poverty. It's an easy thing to say. He made millions. In fact, he had been chosen for his pastorate because he was a millionaire. Never read the book of Isaiah, but he had a fat bank account and he spoke well. Does that make him an evil man? He wasn't. He wasn't. He's actually kind-hearted, did all kind of good things. And yet, his choice to make him a pastor defies everything that the Bible says about a pastor. And the people saw nothing wrong with it. You know why? This man is successful in life. I would say success is America's idol. When it comes down to it, you could live with somebody who's poor if they're beautiful. And you could live with somebody who's ugly if they're rich. You don't believe me? Turn on a TV set. You know what happens? You're sitting next to a man who's 60. You think it's his daughter on the other side. And you say, oh, is this your daughter? He says, no, that's my wife. You say, you must be rich. (laughs) This is the altar Americans worship at. We need to separate it out of our lives in the church. What people are attracted to is the successful self rather than the cross of Christ. See, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. The cross of Christ goes, what could I gain by dying? The cross of Christ forces you to look at things like that and go, what do you mean that I have to lose my life to gain it? In what way does humbling myself in front of all of these people and repenting profit us? They won't respect me afterwards. The cross of Christ forces you to deal with these things. This is why the cross is what transforms lives. And pictures of health, wealth, prosperity, success have never transformed lives, but they amass enormous crowds. Now, you could get the impression that I am against enormous crowds. I'm not. There are large churches in this world that do this well, and people love them because of the sincerity of their convictions, and their pastors have risked everything and continue to, to do what they do. But they don't hold themselves up in competition with Christ. You know, let's just pretend for a moment Brother Treaster writes a book. Brother Treaster, if you're going to write a book, if I just had to guess knowing you, it'd probably be on the cross of Christ. So whose picture do you put on the front? Okay, Cody writes a book tomorrow. Whose picture do you put on the front? You know, I worked with salesmen for a long time. 
I was a salesman for a long time. Do you know there are men in this world that put pictures of people they're not even related to on their desk just to make an appearance? I know a man that had a Navy SEAL emblem and he was never even in the military service. You want to guess what kind of sales that was? She said it, car sales. That's not to pick on car salesmen if you're in the room. That's not the point. The point is they knew something about human nature. If we present success, people will buy it. Do you care what emblem is on your clothes? We say we don't, and then we're careful that we buy purses with the right emblems. And we buy... All mine have Walmart emblems, so... I don't even know the names of them. Y'all, what are some beautiful designer things? Don't act like you don't know. Tell me. More. Tell me. Certainly a 15-year-old boy is not the only one that knows. Tell me. Louis Vuitton, what else? Coach Prada, what else? So let me ask you, if you could get something that is Prada, but instead of $1,500, you could find it for $15, you would buy it, wouldn't you? It's a good deal. Why is it a good deal? Is it better? What is Prada? Is Prada a purse? Who said it? What is Prada? They make everything. Okay, so it would be a purse. Is it really worth more than the next purse that is made similarly? Or is it the logo that makes it expensive? Then why is it a good deal if you can get it for $15? It's perceived value. It's prestige. We perceive value in pretty people that have it all put together, but the cross places value in the man who had no beauty or majesty to draw us to him. It places value upon the one that it costs the most to love you. It places value upon the one who loved the unlovable, not the one who was accepted by all. Do you see how these are at war with the Christian ethic? These are at war, and yet... The church has been slowly morphed into it. Growth cures everything. We can never use our success as payment for God's power. It won't work. The feeling is, when I make enough money, then I will tithe. If you make enough money, you won't do any more with it than you are right now. The feeling as a church is, well, when I get to 500 people, then I will tell them about the Holy Ghost. Then we will do missions. No, you won't do any more with those 500 people than you're doing with the 50 you have right now. Your heart's already revealed. And by the way, when would be enough? 50 people's just not a respectable church. A hundred. No, a hundred's not a respectable church. Never mind Jesus had 12 and 120 in the upper room. Appeared to 500 at once and 380 are not there on the day of Pentecost. That's amazing. It's only 120 in the upper room. But never mind that. You know, if we got to 500, that, that would be... When you get to 500, you want 1,000. When we get to 1,000, you want 1,500. Well, of course, Eric, we want to evangelize the world. What are you evangelizing them with? In whose name and at what cost is your success coming? Because the early church succeeded by preaching the name of Jesus at the cost of their lives. What we succeed at is by having a wonderful pastor teacher. We teach in his name. 
We evangelize in his name, and it costs us nothing, except, of course, the power of God. It's not present in the meetings. When is the last time you heard about a church that was so amazing that the people were selling their property? They were, they were giving away everything that they had to meet each other's needs. You'd want to go to a church like that. That's what we're trying to build here. We're trying to build a church that rejects the world's idea of success and says success is when you're granted the privilege of suffering for the gospel. In Acts 8, 18, says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was giving at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. I mean, he had worked hard to accumulate all of this money, and he would bless them with some of it if he could just have the power of God in return. Lord, we've gathered these thousand people here in our name, I mean your name, and and now that they're here, and we use fleshly marketing, we use the enticement of food, and by the way, my wife and I photoshopped our pictures to look like real estate agents so that we would be the picture of health, wealth, and attractiveness. We had to rent a car to drive up so you wouldn't know that we drive a sled. And now that they're all here for you, Lord, would you please give us the power of God? It has never happened. And it never will happen. Because it's no different than what Simon is saying. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And what was the response? He said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. He thought his success impressed God. And God said, you can't even share in ministry with that kind of thought. Are you able to lace together these pieces? Am I being too ambiguous? Are you beginning to get what I'm telling you. We can't go after the American dream. We can't go after health, wealth, and success and call it Christian and expect God to bless it. It never will happen. But the whole world will run to you. You've got a chicken cam at your church, they'll love you. Next year you can bring in camels, and the year after that you can have elephants wrestle in the front yard if you want. And everybody will come to watch the circus but will their lives be changed? You know, it's, it's a crazy thing to start a church in a home. It is because it's where the early church started, and yet pastors kind of laugh when you tell them you're doing it. Oh, <laughs> I, I thought you had a real church. Yeah, I thought you had a real church too, my friend. What is the first question people ask about a church? After they ask where it's located, because we need a big, beautiful building, and they ask maybe who pastors it, because better be the epitome of Ken and Barbie. What is the next question? How many people go there? Is that question ever asked in the Bible? Never. You're told how many people got saved. You're never told how many attended 
might be told how many were fed. You're never told how many were there. Success in the kingdom is when we hear from God, not when we amass a crowd. Success is the most powerful narcotic that the world has ever known, and the early believers were free from its deceiving power. Consider this. They had no political voice, but we're pretty sure that the Christian coalition will change the world if we can just get a Christian president. By the way, they've all said they're Christians. I don't know how many are Republicans and how many are Democrats in here. I don't care. They're all sinners. I can't remember the last time we had an actual God-fearing man in office. Say, oh, how can you say that? They put their hand on a Bible and swore an oath to office. That'll go away in the next few years, I promise. But they put up, uh, I know what they did. So that's awful judgmental. The word says you know someone, know what kind of tree they are by the fruit. How many men quote scriptures but don't live by the scriptures they quote? The early church had no majority vote. Who was in power when Jesus was born? Augustus Caesar. How many believers were on the planet at the crucifixion of Christ? Believers in Jesus could be counted on one hand, at least the only ones that showed up at the cross. How is it that they changed the world? They had no media presence. They had no social media They didn't get to Facebook. Do you judge your worth by how many people liked your last post? They didn't like Jesus' post, even when his body was posted on a tree. They didn't like it. You know, I'm going to give you a real example here, and then we're going to move on. It's kind of flat in here this morning. Rick and I were in Mexico. Some of the brothers prayed for somebody in a wheelchair. They'd been confined to a wheelchair for over a year. Their legs were a different color than the rest of their body, and they were cold. The power of God moved through that woman's legs. Her legs changed the same color as the rest of her body. Blood flow went to them. She hopped out of the chair, and she walked. Her family was all lost, and they were asked... Was this woman really confined to a wheelchair? Yes. How is it that you say she got out of the wheelchair? We don't know. We can only say it's a miracle. She was offered her wheelchair because it's a long ways home and she was old and she refused to get back in it. She pushed her own wheelchair home. So we posted some pictures of that on the World Wide Web. Doesn't that sound impressive? The World Wide Web. Got to see a picture of a woman in a wheelchair? And then a woman out of a wheelchair and pushing it home. Do you know how many views on the World Wide Web a genuine, authenticated miracle got? Six. Six. You know what was posted just under it? A joke about flatulence. Had a couple hundred views by the end of the second day. Now, I didn't do the research... But I bet if you go back and look at that little question on Facebook about religious affiliation, I bet most of them were Christians. 
not interested in the power of God. And maybe it's because it was a poor person in a poor country that happened to have been misfortunate enough to have not been born whatever color you are. How could we care about it? I mean, we want success or pleasure. Anything for a laugh, right? Now, you might be sitting here going, Eric, that's really not me. That's not my thought. Then let's consider the early church. No political voice, no majority vote, no media presence, no judicial recourse. They couldn't take you to court if you mistreated them. The only thing they had was the power of God to transform a life. And you know what? In a few hundred years, they transformed their culture so radically that the world numbers its years from the birth of their Christ. How did they do it? They didn't do it through political means. They didn't do it through media means. They didn't do it through propaganda. The spiritual success that they enjoyed came in the name of Jesus at the cost of their lives. Often today's seductive, successful self is in the name of a great pastor or teacher and costs us nothing except the power of God. Adjust your collars. If you have a cross, tuck it away for just a second because I don't want to talk about you. Today, a cross is an ornament to be hung around our necks. My daddy had one and I buried him in it, so I'm not picking on you. I'm talking about our culture. It is an ornament to be hung around our necks. It's beautiful jewelry. Of course, then... It was an instrument of death. This is a telling metaphor. We have taken an instrument of death and made it a beautiful sign of success. What kind of crosses do people put around their necks? Wooden ones? They don't put wooden ones around their neck? Why not? They want to be authentic, right? Jesus was crucified on a 14-carat cross, right? (laughs) Jesus was crucified on a platinum cross cross. Jesus was crucified on a sterling silver cross. Why don't we hang a bloody wooden one around our neck? Because we want something pretty, you know, something practical, something people will like. This is a metaphor for the church. We're trying to take what is life-transforming and powerful, but absolutely repulsive to the flesh. And we're trying to make it appealing to the flesh, but life transforming. And that won't work because the gospel forces everything about your life to change. That's what it does. The early church didn't have five steps to self-improvement to make you prettier like the jewelry. They offered death. Turn with me to Luke 9. Say there when you're there. Luke 9, verse 23. He said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. Do you think that you would go to James Avery and buy it? What does it mean to say Christian jewelry? I love James Avery. If you've got his stuff, that's fantastic. But what does it mean to say Christian jewelry? Michael, do you have Christian jewelry on? You're a Christian. 
This is a $13 wedding ring. Are you impressed? $13. Does it sound better if we multiply it times 60? Because I bought it in rupees. And in rupees, it, it, was, it was creeping up on 1,000 rupees. It costs more to eat at Taco Bell with Judah. That's what I'm saying. The brother can eat. Is this Christian jewelry? What's well, a sign of a covenant between me and my wife, and I'm a Christian and I wear it, but it's not Christian jewelry to you. Why? It doesn't have a cross on it. Oh, so the, the pretty cross, it makes it Christian. Are you hearing how distorted things become? You'll be told, I don't know what that pastor's talking about. This brother preaches out of the same Bible he does. Well, he might own the same Bible I have. But he doesn't preach out of the same Bible. Church, we need to adjust our thoughts. You know, you could look out and think that the church of Christ was failing. Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever looked out and gone, oh... The church is sad. No, the church is not sad. The church of Jesus Christ is victorious. What is passing for the church is sad. And we simply can't distinguish between them because we don't know what is Christian and what's not. It has all the right signs, symbols. It meets at the right times. It has the right nomenclature. But it's the power of God there. The transforming power of the cross was all they had. It's all they needed. Obedience to the voice of God would change everything. God appointed a government of his church in Ephesians 4. It picks up in verse 11 and goes through 13. And this government of the church, we fired. We've decided that we didn't need them. And we don't need them because... Have you ever told somebody you go to a church and there are elders... I told the guy in Louisiana, now Louisiana is a sheltered group. I said, yeah, in our church, the elders would have to vote on that. He goes, elders, what kind of cult do you go to? That's what he said. Now, if I'd said presbyters, he might have understood that, not knowing that they're the same word. But what if I said, uh, in our church, we're, uh, we're waiting for the apostles and the prophets to come to a consensus on What do you think he would have said then? Because he's pretty sure that a church has got a pastor, a steeple, a King Jimmy Bible, and stained glass, and the power of God nowhere to be found. It's to be run like a business. It's to be superficial. But it is successful. And you wonder, why would you go to something like that? Because he wants to be a success. That's why. Now, lest we forget our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers, they have completely sold out in wholesale fashion. They're trying to convince the world that if you drive a Bentley, it's a sign of God's blessing. Well, what about the rap star then? They're selling success in the same way. Jesus never sold success, guys, ever. The fivefold ministry is it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors, some to be evangelists, and some to be teachers. I'd like to submit to you that our church is unfathered. Speaking of the American church. Unfathered in the sense that the church is insecure about who it is 
And so it derives its worth from success. When you don't have the power of God and you don't have a mentor in your life that is telling you, hey, brother, I've walked through these things and God upheld me, and you'll walk through them and you'll make it, you begin to cling to other things to call yourself a success. You begin to define your success by the number of people that show up. Your success by the praise you receive or the dollars you receive. The church is uncorrected. If you're living in sin and you're not going to get rid of your sin just like Saul, how do you define what is success? You say, look at the sheep I've got. Look at the camels I've got. Look at the things that I've amassed and they become justification for your sin. The ends is justified or justifies the means rather. If you have a church that's unfruitful, They don't produce real converts. They don't produce real disciples. How do you justify that? Well, you make personal success the goal. No, our church is not growing in depth and wisdom and knowledge of God. They're not becoming more holy. But they are becoming more wealthy. They're becoming good-looking. They're becoming more stable economically. If your church is unhealed, it's never been pastored, you have a congregation full of wounded people, but the success conceals the wound. We say, oh, no, I'm okay, you're okay, I got a nice house, I got a car, I got a job, I got nothing to worry about. Yeah, but do you have unforgiveness? Do you have a crippling, habitual sin that you cannot get free from? We don't look any deeper. Why would we? That's not what we're about. They are already a success. Success is idolatry in this regard. How about an untaught church? (laughs) Been Christians 20 years but cannot quote 20 verses. Oh, it's that we have bad memories. Anybody there got a bad memory? Y'all got bad memories? Bad memories, raise your hand. I want you to remember I'm talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot remember a few verses. Do you know a Beatles song? Do you know a Marvin Gaye song? If I say I heard it through the... Shut it down. You knew that, huh? How'd you know that? I I mean, with our bad memories and all, how, how is it that we know lyrics to songs? If I say there was this movie about a giant shark and uh, it ate people, how do y'all know that? Do you know that that movie is 30 years old? How do you know it? Oh, we we got bad memories, Pastor. It's all about what we love, don't you think? Our biblical ignorance is because success has become our comfort. You know, in places where you are not comfortable but you're afflicted, you learn the Word because you need it to live. You need it to survive. In Romans 15, starting in verse 14, go with me there. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. How would you feel if the Apostle Paul told you that? 
Okay, you're not going to talk to me, then I'll pay. Ibrahim, how would you feel if the Apostle Paul said, I myself am convinced, Ibrahim, that you yourself are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another? How do you feel? Happy. You can say it in Arabic if English is escaping you. <laughs> happy. He'd feel happy. You're going to walk away and feel like a failure if the Apostle Paul has just said this to you? Are you going to feel insecure if the Apostle Paul said you're competent in knowledge, competent to instruct one another and full of goodness? Do you walk away and think, you know, I'm going to go jump off a bridge, maybe I'll shoot myself? How important is it that you have apostles in the church? How would the church at Rome know that they were doing okay? Somebody, and, and how would you know Paul had done okay? See, Paul accepted the gospel at great cost to his life. He was a great man. Do you know what he looked like, anybody? We don't. Do you know how much money he had, anybody? No, we just, we, we know that he knew what it was to be in want. Do we know how good looking his wife was? We don't know. We don't know anything. How big was his church? Which prison was he in? And I'll tell you. Why is he a success? Because of what it cost him to follow Jesus. And when a guy like that shows up and says, you know, Dylan, I'm convinced myself that you're full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct people. How do you feel? This was supposed to be the role of apostles and father figures in the church. But when you remove them, then you have to have just success to make you feel that way. And if you're not successful, perhaps you should go somewhere else. Maybe you're under the curse of a poverty, like I was. I don't feel cursed. Do I look cursed to y'all? My life seemed cursed to you? I never confessed the sin of poverty and broke it. I never did anything like because I didn't believe it existed in the first place. I felt sorry for the man who said it to me. 1 Corinthians 4.15, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Who in your life are you so excited about their costly walk with God? Not cheap grace, costly grace that you want to imitate them. And what do they think about you? Have you noticed that all the disciples of Christ don't have anybody discipling them? How does that work? So if you're put on the spot, who discipled you? You ought to know. And when you answer that, who discipled you? What do they think about you? God intended for this to be a way to do away with insecurity. Unfathered people are insecure, and so they derive their sense of self-worth from what they have. Is that how God would derive it? Not at all. How about this one? Prophet. 1 Timothy 4. We're going to read verses 1 through... We're going to read verse 4. <laughs> the Spirit clearly says that in the latter time some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Is deception real? Yes. Is it possible to be deceived? The Spirit clearly says... That in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. What's verse 6 say? 
If you point these things out to the world, what's it say? If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister. Who points out in your life areas that you're deceived? Who have you given the freedom to to say, you know, in this area, brother, sister, I just think you're wrong. How important is it? Well, if you go uncorrected, your success becomes your justification for your sin. You end up saying things like, I know that there's some internet pornography in my life, but I'm getting better and uh, it's less frequent. And after all, look at what God is doing through me. That's like Judas saying, I know I took 30 pieces of silver, um, but the thing is, is I was still eating with Jesus. You know, I shared his bread. It, I mean, it's all good. Is it? See, when you're uncorrected, the justification for the acceptance of your sin are your successes. Is it an idolatrous attitude? I know people that didn't walk right with God for 10 years, but 20 years ago they sold their houses and moved to other countries, and that was their justification for their present sin. Look what a success I've been. It used to cost me something to follow Jesus. How about the evangelist? An unproductive person views personal success as the goal. Philemon 7, I'm sorry, Philemon 6, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. When you share your faith, what happens to your understanding? It becomes more full. Why? Larissa, if you share your faith, what happens? Well... If you share your faith with Gabriel, and boy, does he need it. I love my Gabe. I'm proud of him. If you share your faith with Gabe and you see the miraculous life-transforming power at work in him, what happens to your appreciation of the gospel? It grows. If you don't share your faith with him, then what is the point of your life? Well, the more I'm a success, I guess that's what God wanted. See, it becomes about you and not about them. Tell me that's not in the church. When we don't have the members of the body of Christ doing what they should. How about the pastor? When people are unhealed, success covers their wounds. Here comes Colossians 3 and verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. If you don't allow somebody to tell you that, then you think, well, I know that I hate Jennifer. But I mean, the Lord's blessing my life. I don't really hate her. The thing is, is, you know, I just, um, we, we don't get along, you know. But he's blessing me. Look at what's happened. My business is doing better this year than last year. My kids are making good grades in school. And church has been so powerful. In what way has it been powerful, brother? It's, I mean, the messages have just been so entertaining. And we actually think that that success that conceals our wound is going to protect us. 
the teacher and the untaught. The untaught are ignorant and success is their comfort. It's okay to not know, and I just, I don't need to know all that. I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord because I'm blessed. Of course, when there's a trial, you want to understand God's word, when it's going to end. You want to understand how you get to the other side. As long as there's no trials, there's no need to study. In 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 10, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written... These people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Who did he say that to? He said it to brothers. What if they were simply ignorant of this before? Well, now they have a chance to avoid it. One of the things a woman told me Wednesday night is, Pastor, I love this church. I I hear that sometimes. I'm excited. It usually means that I'm not going to see you again, but... Pastor, I love this church. You guys go deep in the word. I don't feel like that's particularly true. I think it's just a comparison with a single scripture and a 30-minute story. We have untaught masses during an age when you can have the Bible in 12 languages on your cell phone if you want to. You know why? Success justifies our ignorance. We don't need to know all of that. After all, we're doing pretty well. The fivefold ministry is essential to the body of Christ. Would you agree? I think it's essential, but it's not the starting place. And it's not where we need to finish today. What initiates you into the body of Christ? What is the beginning? What is the narrow way? Where do you first repent? Where do you find the need to repent? See, when Jesus Christ was raised up, when he was set upon that tree, this is the first time we come dramatically into conflict with something. What God calls success involves the death of his son to justify you, that the life that you live, you would no longer live to sin, but you would live to righteousness. What he calls success is when you look at his son and you so identify with what his son is doing that you want to imitate him, that you say, I want my body to be broken like yours is. I want to pour out my life like you've poured out yours that others might be saved. I want to love like you love. In Luke 22, verse 44, please put these on the screen. I want you to think about something. We're going to go from the top of Jesus' head to the bottom of his feet, and then we're going to close our service. I want to strip away the jewelry from the cross for a minute. 
Now that we've talked about the idolatry of success, I want to talk to you about what spiritual success is. And being in, what's that word? Oh man, what is that word? Don't whisper it. What's the word? This is the last time you were in anguish over anything. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. How pressed was Jesus? He was in anguish. And what was he in anguish over? Not my will, Lord, but yours. When is the last time you so agonized over what God told you to do that we could say that you were in anguish? Or do we just dismiss it out of hand? That's not the successful life that God has for me. He would never have asked me that. Because when you can come to grips with this, when you can come to grips with the sweat of his brow, something happens. You lose anxiety. His brow brings you peace. And it brings you peace because like him, when you sacrifice your will for his, you know that that obedience makes you righteous. See, being in anguish over losing your will, losing your life, brings you peace. And it brings you peace because it's no longer your life to lose. Oh, come into contact with Christ's brow. Can you picture him for a minute? Can you picture what sweat, like drops of blood, is like? Now tell me, how much agony have you been over the will of God? The successful church will never know his peace. And they won't know his peace because they never allow themselves to get in anguish to do God's work. I know a little something of anguish. Happens when you wonder why you're on one side of the planet and your family's on the other. It happens when you have no water and your mission strip's not going the way that you thought it should go, and you haven't run into anything except demon-possessed people, and the missionary that you're there with seems to have lost his mind. You've got dysentery, and you've got your 15th trip up a muddy hill in the middle of the night, and you wonder whether you really have to do these things or could you just be like everybody else. And then this peace comes over you that when you're crushed, he doesn't despise you. I know what it is to have the peace of God because I know what the brow of God looks like. How about the back of God? In John 19, 1, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Isaiah 52, 14 says about it, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. What does his back bring us? Is that the successful church, the one that has had its back beaten to he's marred beyond human likeness? Is that cheap grace? Now that's a very costly grace. But wrestling with that, what does it bring you? The way that Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, 24 is his wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. 
Jesus faced agony on a spiritual and physical level that is unspeakable. He did that so that when we come into contact with him, we can be healed. So how does it heal us? You go, he laid down his life at the cost of pounds of his flesh. And if I commit to him to do the same, he'll be my strength. He'll be my success. He'll be my healing. This is the life-transforming power of the gospel, not a slick media presentation, not a PowerPoint in a movie. I'm still reeling from my choice to go see a popular movie here recently. I got chocolate-covered almonds and a 44-ounce drink and watched the crucifixion of Jesus. Follow, I mean, preceded by mostly fairy tale events that never actually occurred. The absurdity of eating chocolate almonds and sucking down a Mr. Pibb or watching the crucifixion of my best friend. But a successful church can do things like that because the crucifixion was just to make you a success. I don't think it was to make you a success, friends. I think it was to invite you to give your life. And that makes you a success. Does your back belong to him? Because if his back belongs to you, it brings you healing in every area. Somebody offended you? Offer him your back. Jesus offered you his. Let it go. Rather take a beating than not be right with God. How about my Jesus' hands? Hold up your hands. Crazy, charismatic Christians as we are, Alex, there's a reason we hold up our hands. The oldest Jewish pictographs in the world, the word praise is spelled with the first letter having its hands raised. There's a reason we lift up our hands. We lift up our hands because we're making an offering to God because he made an offering in his hands to us. What happened to his hands for us? Pierced. All we ever ask is that our hands would be blessed, that the work of our hands would be blessed. Colossians says this, He forgave us, this is verse 13, 2.13, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written codes with its regulation that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to a cross. When those nail marks were put in his hands, John 20, 25, Thomas wanted to see them. The nail marks were put there for a reason. His hands bring us forgiveness. He was pierced so that you could be forgiven. And if his hands were pierced and you're carrying your cross, what should your hands be? What did he say when they drove the nail in his hands? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Let me ask you, is it a success in this world to have accumulated everything that you've accumulated and hate people? Or is it a success to have no debt remaining outstanding except the debt of love? 
Right before worship, Matthew said something to me, and I responded to him, and I was pretty sure I was right until I got to about the third song in worship. Then I realized it was wrong. And the thing is, is Jesus was crucified to forgive me for that sin, to provide forgiveness. But it doesn't end there. If I'm crucified with Christ, what do I have to do? I have to go make it right with Matthew, even if it costs me a nail. Are you hearing me? But what do you get for that? You get the benefit of peace with God and man. His hands on the cross bring you forgiveness and teach you to give it to others. I told you we would go from his head to his feet. Jesus' feet. Colossians 2, 14. He took it away, nailing it to a cross. 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them. Those who are victorious now are never bleeding and naked before the whole world. Those who are victorious now are never surrounded by the mob that hates them. Those who are victorious now would never be filmed or witness bleeding in front of a handful of followers while the world jeered them on because they're great men. And they're great men because they lead great conferences and great churches and great, great, great. But Jesus is great because he submitted to those things. And in doing so, he stepped on the very powers of hell. When his feet were pierced, it was actually like putting it on the devil's head. Do you remember that ancient prophecy? What would happen? You'd pierce your feet, but you would crush his head. His feet are victory for us. But how do you do it? How do you put your your foot on the head of the enemy? When you're opposed, rather than kick somebody, rather than fight with somebody, we go back to the cross and we put our foot on the devil's head not on the brothers. The cross is the life-transforming power. Caesar couldn't crush it out of the people. Jesus' head. Matthew 27, 29, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Is this how you would want to be pictured? Get rid of the religious iconography for a minute. When is the last time anybody ever ran for office with a picture of weakness? When is the last time anybody ever showed up to lead men and didn't put their best foot forward in their appearance? But how did Jesus earn the right to lead us? He was dishonored beyond belief. His very calling and crown was mocked. They pressed into his skull the victor's crown. Jesus' head brings us blessings. He wore a crown of thorns so that you could wear a crown of righteousness. What is success? Success is when we live like Jesus. I'm going to tell you the truth. I admire men that I've met in faraway jungles that are barefoot, and have little to eat besides rice, a whole lot more than I do our nationally renowned speakers. These men have never flown in jets. 
They don't know what it is to command six-figure salaries. But they know what it is to identify with the cross of Christ in their daily life. In John 19.34, they stuck Jesus in the side with a spear. And out of his side, blood and water flowed. It says, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Jesus' side brings us healing. He was pierced so that you could be made whole. If you disregard everything I said about the successful church, let's just take the stations of the cross, if you will. Let's just take the anatomy of Jesus for a minute. Is this what sells books? Is this what we can't wait to download the latest sermon? Is this what brings the largest crowds? Or is a message more like this? With every head bowed and every eye closed, raised a pinky. And if you can do that, then God will give you help in this life, heaven in the next life, and you will be a success. That message never changed the world. It changes the church to become like the world, but it never changed the world. I think we need a return to the cross of Christ. I think we need a return to not just visiting him at the cross, but obeying the government of God so that we're mentored by an apostle figure. We're corrected by a prophet figure. We're learning to multiply discipleship with an evangelism figure. That we experience ongoing healing and live under the guidance of a pastor. That we get taught personally and take responsibility for learning the whole counsel of God through a teacher. We're inviting you to a different kind of Christianity. It's one that says you may never be a success in their eyes. And you probably will not be. It's not our goal. Our goal is to acquaint you with every detail of Jesus from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet that you might be crucified like him. Amen. And the promise that we make is not wealth. It is not health. It's not ease or comfort or luxury. The promise that we make is that when you're obedient to his word, you experience his peace in his life. And you'll reign with him for an eternity. When we describe Jesus' head or his brow, we describe his hands. When we describe his feet, I used to show pictures of it. You know what people did when I showed the pictures? I didn't show them today because I wanted to be able to tell you that. If you shy away of Jim Kavitzel on a screen portraying Jesus as an actor, if that sickens you in the stomach, then you probably haven't been meditating on the cross every day, have you? But this is another sign of the successful church. We don't want to be confronted with the bloody truth. We just want the resurrection. We just, we want the end. Tell us how to get there as fast as possible. But the real Christian walk is a crucifying experience. I would have liked Riley to be healed before I even spoke the words when I just thought about it. 
I would like Steve and Dee Dee to have had not one problem in this life. I wish when I went to that mediation, the man came out, fell at my feet, and just said, what must I do to be saved? But that wouldn't be very crucifying, would it? And I find out what my Jesus is like, and I find out that his grace is sufficient for me. The more I wrestle with all of those things, and I don't feel like I am beat down. I feel victorious in him. And I'm willing to go out and proclaim that message to the whole world because I know it will change them. I'm not an investment salesman. I'm not promising you a return. I'm not a salesman at all. Somebody who stands at the feet of Christ and says, I know what happens if you get on this tree with him. And it's wonderful. It's much better than anything that you could have imagined because you don't have to keep a record of wrongs anymore. You don't have to have sleepless nights anymore. You can have the power to say no to sin and have the power to reconcile with your spouse before the argument even begins. You can have the power to love your neighbor and don't have to walk around with hate. You can be like Jesus, but it starts at that cross. Could you stand to your feet?